good to see you this morning. We're continuing to think about the theme of listening to God over this Lent period. And we listen to God in all sorts of different ways, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. And we're going to think about the fact that God calls. We're going to think about the fact that God calls. And I don't know whether you're someone who's been, would, you'd say you're a Christian, you may not be a Christian, but whether you think that you hear God's voice clearly. When I was preparing uh, this series of just saying, we'll do something slightly different in Lent from the book of Acts, I kind of it was quite clear that I felt I'd heard God talk about listening and about being able to hear, and I'd prepared a series of six weeks where I invited a range of people uh, from outside our community, some of whom are quite well known, to come and speak to us. Because I kind of sat and thought, well, do you know what? I'd love you, us, to hear the challenge of other voices and when we hear other people speak, it's kind of trying to discern, what is God saying to me in this? When anybody stands up um, at the front of church, or when you ever have a conversation with anybody at all, one of the things uh, I hope in your heads that you're thinking, thinking is, okay, where is God in this conversation? Can I hear God's voice in some of the most mundane conversations we have? Actually, there is a sense that God can speak in all sorts of different ways prepared all these people, arranged them originally, said yes, actually other than one person, so on the last uh, Sunday of Lent, someone is coming. All of them have decided that they, they couldn't come for various reasons. And so you're left with me over this Lent period. Is That's a way of saying, so you've got me for kind of a few weeks. But all of us try to listen, don't we? We think maybe we hear God. We may know scripture back to front. We may have been a Christian 60, 70 years. I've been a Christian 50 years, probably just about. But do we actually hear God on a day-by-day basis, in a living way? And that's our challenge this morning as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning that you are a king who loves to speak. And in declaring your kingship that we did as we were singing and worshipping together, we want to say it's your voice, your call, that we long to hear. Your words of life that cut through the noise of this world. And Father God, we declare again as we've sung that you are Lord and King both in this church, in our community, and in our lives. Would you speak afresh to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. I am old enough to, um, to be part of the kind of generation who grew up when the idea of talking about careers or job was actually called a calling. We still used to talk about things as a calling, but actually the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I feel called to it. It's a bit old-fashioned now, in a way. Don't, we don't often use that idea that we have a vocation the kind of way that vocation, the meaning of the word vocation simply means call or calling. And the reason it's sort of slightly ironic that we don't use that language anymore is that actually one of the things you'll find, I don't know, I find on a regular basis in the conversations I have is that as a culture, you just constantly bump into people who are longing to find meaning and purpose in their lives. They've lost any sense of 
grand narrative, any sense of meaning in a kind of real way to their lives as we've abandoned that idea of cool. So they often feel like people often say, I'm going through the motions, I'm really being tossed about in the sea and I don't really know where I am. Does what I do on a day-by-day basis matter? I don't know about you, but I imagine most of you, whatever stage of life you're in, you work really hard at your job, or you're really hard at school or at university, hard at home, hard in the kind of different things that you're involved with. But for what purpose are you working so hard? Why are you working so hard? I remember many times when I used to work in the NHS for many uh, really, really you know, through periods that are incredibly difficult. You take consolation in the small things. Like, well, I get to bless a few people in my life. Or I provide a job for people. And what we take comfort in is the things around what we do, rather than have a a clear sense of God's call to our lives and a sense of purpose in it. But ultimate meaning... That's what we're talking about this morning. Os Guinness, in his book titled The Call, cites a historian who claims there have been, in the history, there have been at least 20 great civilizations. He said the secular West, both Europe and uh, America, is the first civilization ever in which people lived without a grand sense of meaning or purpose. We cannot live well without a meaning or a sense of purpose. And so we tend to look and try and acquire it in a range of different ways. I've picked five here that I think you'll recognize. You may recognize it's something you live for this morning. You may recognize it as something the people around you live for. People who spend their lives trying to acquire more and more possessions. We call them materialists. We shop till we drop. Others who are constantly looking for the next thing that will bring them pleasure. We call them hedonists. No, not a very old-fashioned word. But I recently read a quote by an American sports star who, in a sense, summed it up really perfectly. He said this, I try to play my sport like an all-star. I party like a rock star and have sex like a porn star. Hedonists. Others of us maybe spend our life looking in the past, thinking if only I could make sense of my parents and what happened to me. And we spend all our time looking to, in a sense for purpose in our past. And we think of those people as people who are essentially therapists, finding purpose in all that's happened before. Many of you will have worked, kind of got paid work or whatever, even if it's unpaid work. And it's very easy for that to become the very center of your life careerists. And very much today, I think, on the back of all the technology that so dominates our life, is that kind of idea that, you know, I can have all my dreams, my purpose and my dreams. And actually, my job is simply to try and fulfill them. But the thing about some of these things, and not all of those things, are clearly bad, but they were never intended to be the center of our lives. Never end to be the kind of core bent bits of our lives. And ultimately, if we place those other things at the center of our lives, as we know, they will ultimately let us down. 
So what's life all about? Let me suggest to you something from Scripture. The central meaning and purpose of life is God's calling of you. Life, our lives, is a response to God's call upon your life. God is calling you, and the question is, will you respond? God's calling you out of love this morning. And what's he calling about? For much of church history, when we've heard that, when people have talked about calling, actually what we tend to think is when we mention calling, we think about the very sacred things. We often think, so, you know, if you've got a collar, you're a particularly sacred person. Thank you very much. Don't ask my wife about that. If you're a missionary, you might be a particularly sacred person. Uh, if you're a monk or a nun, you might be a particularly sacred. You know, those are the people who are called. Other people have jobs. Other people have jobs, and we just put our shoulder in. And over church history, that's often been the way people have seen it. But in the Reformation, Calvin and Luther, and then the Puritans particularly found offense in this, seeing that actually there's no clear sense in Scripture around that. There's much more, more holistic sense of God's call on our life that we find in the Bible, in which all our lives, every part of our lives, is called to be lived in response to God. We're called as a response to God's enormous love for us to display his splendor in the world. And therefore, the way we relate to our family, the way we relate to our money, the way we relate to our work, actually everything matters to God. He doesn't just care about the hour or so you turn up on a Sunday and somehow that will make you holy or be all right. So our call, God's call on our life begins with a calling to respond to God's call on our lives, to be in relationship with him, to belong to his family, God's church. You don't start with a call to do. I know lots of us kind of want to just get on with it. But it starts with a call to belong to God and to belong to his family. The Bible uses lots of different verses that talk about call. We mentioned one of them. I'm actually just going to talk about a range of passages this morning. Not going to go into 1 Peter in great depth. But uh, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. The God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. I'll leave the other verses up for a bit for you to think about them. The central meaning and purpose of our lives is to be found in God. Is to be found in God. All the other things then happen as a consequence of that rather than the other way around. Him first. When you ask the basic questions of someone, what are you ultimately looking for? You know, what do you hope to get out of life if you ever ask people those kind of really basic questions? The biblical answer is simply this it's a longing to belong to God. To belong to God. Augustine kind of famous Christian in the fourth century, once famously said this, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Let me say that again. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Is that your story? 
that your heart was longing and until God found you and you found God, that suddenly peace came. Douglas Coupland is a, a best-selling writer. Uh, he was actually the person who coined the term Generation X. We've gone way beyond generation, generation X now. But he wrote a book called Life After God. In a sense, making sense of the fact that a whole generation of people, particularly in that generation, grew up with any kind of Christian influence, ongoing Christian influence in their lives, that God really isn't a very real reality for most people. But Coupland talks about the search, ironically, in his book about God's presence. And he said this. This is him speaking. Now, this is the man who wrote about life after God. Now, here is my secret. I tell it to you with the openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My, my secret is this. I need God. I am sick and I can't make it alone. I need God to give me help because I no longer seem capable of helping myself. I'm not capable of giving in a way that I long to. I'm not capable of being kind in a way I'd like to. I'm not able to love in a, which, a way in which I feel I need to. I seem unable to do it. I need God. In many ways, what he's attesting to is that with all the self-improvement books you can find, with all the sense of reinventing yourself, becoming your own best friend, and the things that are awash in our own society, that's not the central meaning of life. Our central purpose and meaning of life is to be in relationship, in a deep relationship with the living God who made you, who loves you, if you'll trust him, redeem you, and welcome you into his family. I am a child of the living God, taking us from a status of in darkness into light. I belong to God in and through Christ. Um, I know this slightly dates me, and I was having a read through this, but uh, secondly, I also want to think that we belong to the people of God. Um, one of the most famous TV shows of all time um, was in the late 90s, and I think early 2000s. It was a show called Friends. And it's about this group of people who used to hang out together. They used to live in the city, I think in New York. They didn't appear to have any jobs. Uh, that they were able to live in a kind of really expensive city, um, doing living amazing lives, hanging out in a coffee shop, talking about the fun things they're going to do. They used to wear great clothes and spend time with it. But the central message of Friends was a belonging to a group of people. And the Friends theme was this, is that I'll be there for you. I'll be there for you. Why? Because the last line of the song, of the theme song, was this, is that because you're going to be there for me too. So you know we were made for something bigger and something grander than ourselves alone. It's instinctive within all of us. But God has called us um, out of that kind of place of loneliness and wanting to do it all on our own into being children of the living Heavenly Father by faith, through grace, in Christ alone, born of the Spirit of God, welcomed into God's family. 
but actually we're called to go beyond the friends jingle, which says, you know, actually, I'll be there for you if you'll be there for me, because most of us know who were brought up in families. Sorry, Joe's family's here today, so I won't be too rude. Uh, but actually, it's, it's difficult doing people and families. We're all different. And actually, if we only want to love people when they love us back in the way, it does, we, that's why we're so broken as a culture. But fortunately, a God of grace and a God of mercy recognizes we can't do it alone and comes in extraordinary love and says, come and belong to my family. Rely on me to live to, for the life that you couldn't live on your own. And I welcome you into God's community. We're called to belong to the church. It's his idea, it's God's idea. Church isn't just a place I turn up to and go. It's his people, God's people, God's community, God's family. And then actually, uh, I just want to briefly look at some few verses that are so well known, and we've looked at this previously, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, as people who say, I will follow you, Jesus, are called to be salt and light at our home, in our homes, in private, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, wherever. God has called us to be salt and to be light. Most of us will know these passages really well, so I won't take long, but I just briefly want to say a couple of things. At least part of what it means to be salt is to preserve this world from the tendency towards decay and corruption. The ancient world, as you'll know, didn't have refrigeration, and so in order to preserve meat, they used to rub salt into the meat, and it had a preserving effect. And the reason this is particularly important and so challenging for us is this, is that kind of the modern idea of our culture is that we are constantly progressing. Things are getting better and better all the time. We're advancing, but the biblical picture doesn't suggest that. It doesn't say that. It says unless the preservative life of God's life comes into the world, the tendency is towards decay and corruption. The world would spiral down without Christ. So we're called to be salt, full of grace, full of truth, at the same time, all of the time. And I know that's tough. I know I've chatted to a whole range of you at different points, particularly those who work in the world. And actually, I know how difficult it can be to be salt and light in, in um, cultures, in our, in our workplaces that are actually anything but. But actually we're called to be salty in a good way, not as in the bad way of that word. Becky Pippert, who famously wrote a book uh, much about evangelism, used to say this. She said, the salt needs to get out of the salt shaker into the world. 
We're not called to hide away. We're called to be out there in the world making a difference. The other thing I'd say about Salter, one thing I have learned, having watched a few too many cookery programs in my life, is that actually you can have the best ingredients you want in the world, but it's the seasoning that brings out the flavor. It won't taste great unless it's seasoned well. And Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That abundant life, allowing the abundant life of God to continue to fill our lives and to flow out of our lives. That's how we continue to live salty lives. We continue, whatever generation we are, to have a sense of spiritual hunger for God and longing for God. And then secondly, in that passage, the call to be light. It is amazing that Jesus, bear in mind, you are the light of the world. It doesn't say, try and be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Just think about that for a minute. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world in your workplace. You are the light of the world in your home, with your kids, with your family, with your two generations up, with your neighbors. You are the light of the world. God's intention was always to make, uh, to, for his people to display who he is, to show people who he is. It was always his intention with Israel. His intention with the church to display God's splendor to a world who don't recognize him, don't know him. Shine for him. Joe Fink said a few weeks ago, and I'll just quote again, each of us are probably the only Bible that most people we come across will ever read. So by our conversation, by our mercy, by our willingness, by our ability to reconcile with the people who really irritate us, by your graciousness, by your giving, by your humility, by your generosity, we will communicate that Christ is our Savior. This is what Christ is like. C.S. Lewis, um, famous writer, many of you all heard of him, once said this. He said, the best evidence for the existence of God is looking at Christians. He said, unfortunately, the reverse is also true. The thing is this, God in his great plan for the world has chosen us. It is us. It's not someone else. It's you this morning. It's me this morning. It's us who are his ambassadors. And we're called to shine. And then lastly, we're called uh, to do what I'm finishing with doing. When we get into this world... You know, we are fulfilling God's attention when we get about the business that we're called to. You know, it is appropriate to examine our hearts and our lives and our talents and to, to mentally but also practice, say, Lord, I place all that I am into your hands. I want to do the most good that I can with all the gifts that you've naturally given me, with this one life that you've given me on this earth. Lead me to the place and give me the confidence and the faith to believe that you've called me here and I'll behave like a called person, a call by the kingdom, from the kingdom of God. Call us to your purposes in our life. Call us to be your hands and your feet. Call us to shine and to do good this week wherever God has placed you. Don't live like it's all chance. And you're somehow sort of bumbling around and hiding. 
Live like a cold person who God has placed his hand upon and called you to do good work where he's called you to be. I'm going to finish with John Wesley, who I was thinking about this week, one of his most famous quotes. And this was bold, bear in mind who Wesley was, but to finish. Do all the good you can, in all the ways you can, to all the souls you can, in every place you can, at all the times you can, with all the zeal you can, as long as you ever can. Amen. Just take a moment of, uh, of quiet. I'm going to respond in worship, then I'm going to have, you're all invited to come to the Lord's table this morning. But just before we do that, I'm just really conscious there'll be many here who say, this is new, some saying, this is, I've heard this all before. But just take a moment to say, Lord, I, I want to hear your call again on my life. Heavenly Father, as we sang about your Lordship at the beginning of this service, we affirm again that's true. And Father, I pray that the clouds of noise that sits over many of our lives, where we're longing to please other people, where other people's voices are far too loud over our heads. And some of that is parents. I'm very conscious as a parent that my voice can be too strong, but it can also be too weak. Father, we repent as a church, where we've stopped trying to listen for your voice and wanted to listen to everything, every other voice. Father, I pray that you'd break through the clouds of, of heaviness and noise that sit over our lives. Restore our love for your word in us. Would you grow confidence in us that you are with us if we will spend a lot of our time in difficult places? Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come afresh and anoint us? Would you fill us with your spirit to fulfill your calling on our lives in some tough places, in our workplaces, in our families maybe, in our neighborhoods? And would you reorder our lives in a way that has you right at the center? This Lent, if the stuff we need to jettison that's far too important in our lives, would you put your finger on that, Lord Jesus, this morning? Father, thank you that your voice, even when it's in correction, is a voice that brings life. Would you receive your word and your words over our lives?
Now, Father, this morning we choose in response to your extraordinary love for us to continue to follow you, to continue to put you at the very center of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you like to stand?